And now we are joined by uh, Michael Zweig, friend to WPKN, actually uh, helps with the news uh, on a uh, weekly basis. Appreciate that very much. Michael is uh, a scholar. He's a professor of economics emeritus and also the former director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at Stony Brook University. He's the author of many articles and several books, including What's Class Got to Do With It? American Society in the 21st Century, and another, I would, the title of which I love, The Working Class Majority, America's Best Kept Secret. Michael's working on another book. Perhaps he'll tip his cards and let us know what that's about tonight. But, Michael, I asked for this interview to discuss the PRO Act, P-R-O Act, which stands for Protecting the Right to Organize, and it's a piece of legislation that's been passed by the House, and that could, I think, in my estimation, my humble estimation, and wondering about your perspective, could transform the prospects for the labor movement, which has been hamstrung and suppressed by regulations and legal strictures in this country for over six decades. So we're definitely going to discuss the specific provisions of the PRO Act tonight, but we also want to place it in its historical context, the context of the history of labor movement and its early emergence in the 19th century through the period of development and militancy in the 1930s. Its initial decline after World War II began to decline, and its eventual near-death uh, near experience or demise beginning in the 1980s. So, Michael, let me just pass it to you now, and, and we can decide, uh, you know, on how we want to go and when we want to go there, but I just want to give you a shot at joining the, uh, the fray here and uh, giving us your thoughts so far. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's uh, good to be with you always. Uh, let me say, to start, that the... Um, restrictions and the legal uh, limitations that have been erected over the last 60 years or so to limit uh, labor organizing and union organizing is really just sort of the outline of what really is behind it, which is corporate resistance to unions. The management has been resisting union drives uh, forever, but they have increased their capacity to resist by uh, channeling their interests into the National Labor Relations Board, into legislation, and into regulations that govern uh, collective bargaining. And that's what this law is designed, or this act, this proposal, is designed to uh, reverse. Just to give you an idea, you had mentioned that uh, at the height of the union campaigns and union strength in the 1950s, over a third of American workers were in unions, and uh, now it's less than 11%. So it's been reduced by over two-thirds. So that's a major decline. But um, let's put that into perspective. Uh, surveys and, and um, uh, sampling of American workers suggest quite consistently that 60% of American workers want to be in a union. If you just ask a worker, whether they're in a call center or in a hotel or in a factory or in a meat processing plant, do you want to be in a union? 60% say yes, but only 11% are actually in unions. So that means that 80% of people who want to be in a union aren't. And it's not because unions aren't trying to get them. 
It's not because unions aren't trying to organize. It's because the law, as it has been uh, uh, interpreted and as it has uh, developed over the last 60 years, has really resulted in uh, the strangulation of the American labor movement, despite the desires of American workers. And that's what this law is designed to uh, overturn and to give workers the capacity to overcome management resistance and uh, that's where the real battle lies, not just in the law, but actually in the conflict between labor and uh, management. Yeah, I have thought that anyone born after 1984, which was the midpoint of Ronald Reagan's neoliberal rampage, must see sort of a giant blank spot with regards to the current labor movement and its uh, ability to unionize workers in the United States. You know, with, you mentioned a steep decline in uh, unionized workers from 35% down to 11%. There's virtually no coverage of the labor movement in the media, mainstream media, of course, but not really enough in the independent media. So it's no wonder that youngish people see unions as kind of a ragtag band of dead-enders who are still clinging to the outdated artifacts of class consciousness and militant labor action as a weapon against income inequality and as a path to middle-class life for millions of working people. Those are the things that happen in Europe with their messy nationwide strikes and that ruin everybody's day or week or month. So for a generation wearing the blinders from growing up in a neoliberal era, I think it would be important to review the militant labor history in this country stretching from the late 19th century to the present day. And you, there are obviously high points and low points, but I think that most people, as I said, people in their 40s and, maybe, maybe, and of course younger, don't realize that this country has a militant labor history. Well, as the saying goes, the unions are the people that brought you the weekend. Because we, you know, we have a five-hour, I mean, a five-day week and a forty-hour basic uh, uh, week work week because of unions and because of worker organization and militant uh, strikes and demands over a period of decades uh, that finally got a law passed in 1938, the Fair Labor Standards Act, that created the standard forty-hour week with time and a half for overtime that developed uh, and asserted at first a minimum wage, which at that time was 25 cents an hour. And uh, those things all that we take for granted are the outcome of a militant labor movement, which confronted the power of management, the power of capital, the power of big business, the power of corporate interests that were controlling government and local and state and federal policy with regard to collective bargaining and labor relations in the plant. So unions are just a representation of workers banding together and organizing a collective response in order to get power, in order to exert that power. And that has uh, been the subject of a tremendous amount of debate in the, in the labor movement. That means among workers for 150 years. What do we do after the Civil War? What do we do to protect our interests as workers in this new developing industrial revolution? Some uh, paths were very militant and looked at class consciousness for the workers as a whole. Other approaches really looked only at their own um, 
employment. Uh, we just want to work with plumbers, or we just want to work with uh, wheelwrights, or we just want to work with mechanics. We don't want to work with all workers together organized. We're just going to focus on this narrow group of people who have our skill and our trade because that's where we can exercise the most power. And that was the basis of the American Federation of Labor, uh, which was developed in the 1880s. And it was uh, designed to just focus on the narrowest conception of workers who would be united around their immediate craft. They didn't think about the working class as a whole. Well, that uh, developed, but also uh, because so many workers came in the later part of the 19th century, early 20th century, who were unskilled, who didn't have a particular trade that was very valuable to a manufacturer. So they uh, organized as a class, as workers in general. And that developed uh, international work, uh, industrial workers of the world, the IWW, the Wobblies, and other forms of, of class-wide organizing. And those tended to get suppressed. Uh, those tended to get uh, their leaders thrown in jail or exiled or uh, arrested in the Palmer raids in 1920, uh, where the federal government came in and just arrested 10,000 labor organizers and deported 450 of them to uh, Finland so that they could go to Russia, where they belong, so, so-called. And so the back and forth about how do we organize in order to protect our interests has been a constant and long-term question inside the labor movement. And more recently, in the uh, last, say, five or eight years, there's been more understanding of a broader conception of organizing outside of specific trades. For example, in the Fight for 15. The Fight for 15 is a, is a labor organizing drive that brings in workers from all different kinds of industries and sectors, from uh, hospital, you know, hospital workers and fast food workers and people who are making beds and hotels. All these people are looking for an increase in their wages in this fight for 15. Now, that's not a union battle, but it's a working class battle. And uh, now we have, uh, I just looked today, I didn't, I didn't see any result of the election, uh, union election down in Bessemer, Alabama, where uh, workers at um, Amazon in a big warehouse are organizing, and we'll see if they can get a union there. That would be the first time an Amazon facility anywhere in the United States would be organized into a union. And if that happens and that's successful, that will trigger off a lot of interesting uh, after effects as workers increasingly come to understand that they have the right and the necessity to organize. Now, they're in doing that, they meet resistance from their management. They meet resistance in organizing drives of all sorts that used to be uh, unfair practices, now they're allowed. And what the PRO Act does, this Protecting uh, the Right to Organize Act, is it uh, gives workers protections that they used to have, which have been taken away over the years. But this is an act that restores some of the protections that workers got in the New Deal, going all the way back to the 1930s. 
Um, and we can get into the particulars, but the, the main point is that the uh, Protecting the Right to Organize Act is probably the most important piece of uh, pro-labor federal legislation uh, since, uh, the new, since the New Deal, since the 1930s. This might be the time to look at the really near-fatal blow that was dealt in 1947 with the passage of the Taft-Hartley Act. And just to talk about how uh, deep the cut was into the ability for workers to organize and to be able to collectively bargain and to go on strike. The Taft-Hartley Act is ancient history, of course, to most people in this country now. But when, when you really look at, at some of the provisions in it, you realize that that's where this near-fatal blow was dealt to labor. So I'm hoping that you can give us some, just some su- summary of some of the provisions of that act, and we can then you know, refer back to the PRO Act and see how many of those Taft-Hartley wounds will be healed by the PRO Act. Should right, it be that's, that's a good way to uh, think about it, that the PRO Act undoes a lot of the damage to the labor movement. And to, when I say the labor movement, I'm talking about work, ordinary working people. What that uh, Taft-Hartley Act did is, in very important ways, undone in this legislation. So the Taft-Hartley Act uh, passed in 1947. President Truman vetoed it because it was so anti-labor. But Congress overrode that veto because it, both houses were controlled at that time by uh, Republicans and pro-business interests, so uh, that law got passed. The, the Taft-Hartley Act amended the Wagner Act, which was passed in 1935, and that's the act that gave federal protection to workers to organize unions. And that Wagner Act identified a number of things that were called unfair labor practices that management was forbidden to do. So, for example, management was forbidden to go and run their own candidates for a union election and have a a company union. Can't do that. That's against the law. Management cannot fire a worker for organizing a union. The management can't come in and say, Joe, I see you've got that union bug on your uh, jacket. You're fired. Get out of here. You can't do that. Management cannot do that legally. I mean, they obviously can do it, but the worker can then go and get reinstated. And uh, there were a number of other uh, unfair labor practices that were uh, identified that management couldn't do. Well, what the Taft-Hartley Act did was presented a whole list of what were called unfair labor practices that workers and unions couldn't do. That wasn't part of the original act. That wasn't part of the original conception of collective bargaining, which was management has enough power. Here we're going to give workers the power that they need to confront that management power. And that was the the importance and the significance of the Wagner Act, or the uh, National Labor Relations Act, as it's sometimes called officially, uh, from 1935. So what were the things that the Taft-Hartley Act did that identified unfair labor practices for workers? Well, for one, you can't have mass pickets. You have to open up the space for workers to come in or scabs to come in through the picket line. You can't have mass pickets that block a, uh, a facility. You can't have what are called secondary boycotts. Now, I don't know, maybe our listeners are familiar with the great boycotts in the 1970s that got uh, 
uh, union recognition for farm workers in California. There was a big campaign to boycott the grapes that were picked by non-union labor in California. And that was done in order to pressure growers to recognize the union. So there were uh, picket lines that were set up all over the country in front of grocery stores all over the country that said, don't buy grapes that have come from California. But what you couldn't do is say, don't go into the store and shop at A&P here or at uh, the Gristides or the Shop and Stop. Stop and Shop, you can't go in there. Don't, we're boycotting the store because it carries those grapes. That's a secondary boycott. It's illegal. Wait, that's can, as defined by the Taft-Hartley Act? No, it's, yes, as defined by Taft-Hartley. It, it made it illegal for a uh, union to ask for a boycott or organize a boycott of a company that did business with a company where there was a labor dispute. This PRO Act reverses that, allows that. The uh, uh, PRO Act allows for mass pickets. The PRO Act undoes the so-called right-to-work laws, where uh, what the uh, Taft-Hartley Act did is it allowed states to pass laws that would limit the ability of unions to collect dues from people who they represent but who don't want to join the union and want to stay outside the union and not pay them any money, even though those workers get the benefits of the contract, get the benefits of union representation, they don't have to pay for it. That's called the so-called right-to-work state. And uh, that, what that does is it undermines the ability of unions to get the resources they need to represent the, the, the workers in their industry. It undermines their ability to challenge management because you need resources to do that. So those right-to-work laws are passed all over the country. There's about 27 states now or 28 states that have those right-to-work laws. And uh, the uh, PRO Act, the Protecting the Right to Organize Act, comes in and says on a federal basis, unions, uh, no state can, can do that. Those state laws would be rendered inoperative by this federal law that would say, if you're represented by a union and you get the benefits of that representation, you either join the union, you don't have to join it, but you do have to pay the equivalent of dues because you're getting the benefits. Now, that, those dues don't go for political work. That's another thing. The political arm of supporting candidates and all that that unions undertake is funded but not through dues, but funded through some uh, committee on political action or whatever the union has. So the idea here in this uh, uh, Protecting the Right to Organize Act is to undo some of the most important restrictions on labor that the Taft-Hartley Act put into place. What does it say about sympathy strikes? Were those legal under the Wagner Act, and did the Taft-Hartley Act ban them? Well, a sympathy strike is sort of like a secondary boycott. Yeah. I mean, if I'm working at a parts plant, and, that, and the parts plant is sending parts to General Motors' factory, the assembly, but the parts plant is not owned by General Motors. It's another company. 
and there's a strike at General Motors, or the workers have a contract dispute at General Motors, a, a, a sympathy strike would be, uh, in my plant where I'm producing parts that are going to go to General Motors, I'm going to organize a work stoppage so that my company doesn't produce those parts until General Motors settles its, its differences with its workers. Taft-Hartley prohibited that. The Pro, uh, Pro Act uh, seemingly allows that. And I have another question about the, I guess it was called, when I, I remember it actually being being invoked, it was sort of a, let's stop action, everybody. We're going to have a, a cooling off period while both sides try to cool down and collect their sell, themselves right. and come back right. to the bargaining table right. after a 60-day period. I, 80 days, yeah. Oh, 80 days. Okay. So that, that, I think, was one of the provisions of the Taft-Hartley Act? That's correct. Okay. But only in the case of uh, a so-called strike of national significance. Mm-hmm. So, like, if you have a railroad strike and you stop all transportation in, in, in the country because the rail unions are on strike, with Taft-Hartley, the president of the United States has the authority to say, I declare a so-called cooling-off period for 80 days in which the workers go back to work, management goes back to manage, and they continue to try to settle this difference outside of a strike. And if they can't, after 80 days, the strike can resume. That's what the uh, Taft-Hartley did. Now, anybody who's ever tried to organize a strike or a major worker action knows that it's very, very hard to, do, to, to build up the momentum and to build up the unity of action to get it started. And then to have it stop it's very difficult to get that momentum again after 80 days. So effectively, what that um, cooling off period did was basically destroy strikes of national of national significance. Mm-hmm. If you have some local shop or some local community thing that's going on somewhere, that wouldn't be significant enough on a national scale. And whether the the PRO Act actually undoes that, I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. I haven't seen that it does, but I haven't read the whole act. But it hasn't really been used all that often. uh, It isn't really the main problem that workers face that this act uh, tries to fix. I'll give you some other examples that are much more important on a daily basis for worker organizing. For example, this makes it really, uh, let's see, I'm just looking here at at, uh, the bill makes it an unfair labor practice to require, that's an unfair labor practice of management, to require or coerce employees to attend employer-organized meetings that are designed to discourage union membership. So right now what happens is you get a plant like uh, you have an organizing drive like what's going on down in uh, Bessemer. Well, what the company can do and what it has done uh, is call workers in to talk to management. You have a, a meeting, you get 150 workers in the conference room, and you put up a big projector, and you say, this is why unions are terrible. They're just going to take your money. They're no good, and the company puts a whole line of argument about why you shouldn't join the union. And you are required to go to that. You have to attend. Well, you know, if management has the right to bring every employee in to that propaganda show on its own behalf, and workers don't have the ability, or the union doesn't have the ability to require workers to hear the opposite, 
you know, that's an unfair labor practice. Now, originally, in uh, under the Wagner Act and even Taft-Hartley, uh, the courts ruled that that was illegitimate, that w- that was too much power in the hands of management. But gradually, as you say, with with Reagan and with the change in climate and the increasing anti-labor um, sentiments in the con- in, in the in the leadership of the country, the decline of workers' voices in politics and in the mass media, it became increasingly permitted by the National Labor Relations Board and by the court, by the courts. It became increasingly permitted to have workers required to attend those things. Now that has had a very damaging effect on the ability of unions to reach workers and to counter those arguments. And so what has happened in this PRO Act is that that kind of mandatory uh, attendance is now forbidden. Well, that's a major change in the the day-to-day dynamics of organizing. That's a much more important thing than the um, uh, 80-day cooling off period. Well, we've certainly seen that tactic used. We've, we've seen it here used locally at Yale when the organizing drives were happening at Yale New Haven Hospital, the healthcare workers. But at, in Bessemer, at the Amazon, the organizing drive there, the company is using that with great flair and energy to uh, try to, I guess, to some degree, brainwash, but also intimidate workers into taking a, an anti-union stance. Oh, yeah. Oh, definitely. That's the whole point of them, is to intimidate the workers and to tell them lies and you know about, about the union and about how corrupt every union is, and they'll just come and take your money and dues, and they won't do anything for you, and we're here to listen, and we don't need an intermediary as though the union is something separate from the workers. Um, there's all kinds of uh, stuff that goes on in those mandatory meetings that is misleading and wrong and just outright lies. And workers right now are required to attend them. So, uh, you know, another uh, thing that's uh, in this law that I think is important for, for our listeners and for people in general to understand is that the law changes uh, and widens the definition of who's an employee and who's an employee of, of, of what. So is an Uber driver an employee of Uber or is it a private contractor, an independent contractor? Is somebody who works for Lyft or for DoorDash, is that a private, just an individual contractor? Or is that an employee of DoorDash? Well, there's been some back and forth, and different states have different rules, and workers at Lyft and Uber and uh, Airbnb and all these places who are working to be considered workers. And that means that they have the right and the protections of labor law, whereas if they're just independent contractors, they have no rights to organize. There's, you know, the law doesn't protect them. So what this law does is it changes the definition of employee to, ex- to expand it into the modern labor force. It used to be when these labor laws were originally written, and even at the time of Taft-Hartley, you got a job and you knew who your employer was. You went to work. There was the boss. But that's increasingly now been hollowed out. So companies subcontract out their work. They have franchisees. They have all kinds of legal structures that 
put distance between the people who do the work and the company that makes the money. And what the point of those layers of distance is to protect the company from having to deal with the workers as workers through a union. So what this act does is it expands and broadens the understanding of what is a worker, who is a worker in relation to an employer, in relation to an employer that allows organizing on the basis of who's in the work, who does the work, and who's getting the money. And that's really such an important point. And this law would do it on on a national scale. That's extremely important. We're speaking with Michael Zweig. We're coming down the home stretch here. But the last thing I wanted to talk to you about, Michael, is a little bit of a detour. But when we get back to the Taft-Hartley Act, I think it's important to realize that after World War II, with the death of Franklin Roosevelt and Harry Truman, who was a Democrat, pro-labor, but virulently anti-communist. Right. And there was a change, as you pointed out, in the, uh, in the Congress. Republicans swept into into power. And immediately after World War II, the, the alliance, I guess, the great grand alliance between the United States, Soviet Union, Britain, and France, cracks began to appear. Uh, the Cold War kicked off with a, with, a, with, a, with a vengeance. And so the whole attitude toward the left in this country, specifically socialists and communists, turned very, very vicious, actually. And there was a provision in the Taft-Artley Act that forced anybody who was going to, let me get it right here, to to join a union or to lead a union, I'm not sure which, but to sign a loyalty oath saying that they were not a communist and that they eschewed the notion of overthrowing the government by force and violence, which was so far from the agenda of the American Communist Party at that time, who was actually working with the Roosevelt administration and signing, uh, adhering to no-strike behavior during the war t- so that war production could continue apace. But I, I wonder if you could comment on that, because it's been acknowledged, I think, by labor historians and economists all over the map that it was the left-wingers, the communists, the socialists, that were the most effective labor organizers and the most effective labor leaders through the 30s up into the 40s. And to suddenly purge them from the union movement was, I think, a a very fatal attack on unions. I wonder what your thoughts are. Well, it was certainly uh, at at the uh, beginning of the Cold War in 1946, 47, 48, uh, there was a definite uh, attack on the left in American social institutions, not just unions, but in academic life and in government everywhere. And within the labor movement, some of the best and most militant and most class conscious uh, and most dedicated uh, organizers uh, were socialists and communists or people sympathetic, and they were all uh, sort of pushed out in the unions that um, had any uh, left character to them, that left leadership was um, uh, overthrown and defeated uh, through various uh, mechanisms in different unions. Some unions, some left unions, uh, stayed and resisted all of that, and they were expelled from the AFL, and they were just sort of out in the wilderness on their own. But it's certainly true that in the general 
atmosphere of the 19, late 40s, 50s, 60s of the Cold War and the anti-communism, the sort of class-conscious socialist elements of the labor movement uh, were marginalized and silenced, and that contributed greatly to the weakness of the labor movement in uh, presenting itself as uh, capital increased its power in the 60s, 70s. And then by the time Reagan comes along, the labor movement is really quite weak in its ability to resist the kind of things that brought its further decline. Right now, we live in, a, in an environment where a lot of young people think very highly of socialism. <laughs> they, they are uh, socialist-minded and think that capitalism really needs to be pushed back, if not overthrown, certainly limited. And they look to different mechanisms to help with that. Now, as you said at the beginning of this discussion, a lot of younger people don't know the history of labor and don't really think about unions, don't think about labor. And the AFL-CIO unions today are weak, and they themselves are not entirely militant and out there as, uh, as sort of militant voices to, to challenge capital uh, in a way that would inspire a lot of young people. But the socialist ethic is more uh, prominent now. Class-conscious work is more uh, present, like the uh, uh, Fight for 15 and some of these other organizing efforts that we're seeing. And so there is some prospects here. And uh, because management is, and corporate leadership is so dedicated to its opposition to anything that would give labor any power, the necessity of having government protection for workers to exercise that collective power is all the more important. And that's why in the 1930s, the Wagner Act was so very important, and that's why the, today this Protecting uh, the Right to Organize Act is very important. As you mentioned, it did pass the House uh, back in March, and now it's in the Senate. It's uh, S-420. It's at the Committee on, on Health, Education, Labor, and uh, Pensions, and uh, that committee is chaired by Senator uh, Patty Murray from uh, the state of Washington. And so people can contact uh, the committee, again, the Committee on Health, Education, Labor, and the Pensions, Senator Patty Murray, and the ranking member on the Republican side is from North Carolina, Senator Richard Burr. So right now, it sits in the Senate. President Biden has indicated that he supports this. He's been explicit, called it out, named it, said, yep, I want that. And I think that now it's a question of developing the political pressure and the political campaign to get this thing done. And it's one of the most important pieces of legislation uh, in front of us in the country right now. Well, I agree with that. And it's a bit disappointing that this particular piece of legislation has received virtually no coverage whatsoever in the sort of so-called liberal cable circuit. I seldom hear any of those folks, Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow, etc. But, you know, MSNBC is NBC, and NBC is <laughs> Viacom or whoever. You know, it's, it's, it's one thing to be a liberal, and it's another thing to be pro-worker. <laughs> and as you said at the beginning of our conversation, uh, unions and labor organizing have kind of receded from public view. And that is something which uh, we need to uh, take steps to correct. And, uh, you know, discussions like this 
WPKN as a, an outlet for discussions like this is, is precious. Michael, it's been a real pleasure to have you back. Our conversations always enlighten me to the core. So thank you so much, Michael Zweig, for being with us today to talk about the PRO Act. Well, wonderful. Thanks uh, so much, Richard. It's always a pleasure talking to you, and this is uh, one reason why uh, WPKN is such a very important resource for uh, ordinary working people and uh, people who need some justice and some help in getting it. Michael, thank you so much. Let's talk again soon. Anytime, brother, you tell me, and we'll be on the phone again. <laughs> okay. Thanks so much. Bye-bye. Yep. That's Michael Zweig. He is professor of economics emeritus at Stony Brook University, also the former director of the Center for the Study of Working Class Life at Stony Brook.